0: Support for WPR comes from Minnesota Marine Art Museum in Winona, dedicated to creating meaningful art experiences that explore relationships with water, including six galleries, events, and more. MMAM.org Support for WPR comes from the Dram Corporation, manufacturing professional-grade lawn and garden products since 1941, inventors of the 400 water breaker nozzle and the rain wand. DRAMM.com community sponsorship. Resettlement organizations work with community teams to help support refugees and connect them with resources as they start their lives in a new and wholly unfamiliar place. Over the past year, hundreds of Afghan refugees who fled Kabul are now making new lives in Wisconsin communities. Today, we look back on that process. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. We invite you to join in this discussion by calling 800-780- 9742. You can email questions and comments as well to ideas at WPR.org. Eric Yonke is a community engagement manager with the Ethiopian Community Development Council, that's also known as ECDC, the Refugee Resettlement Agency based in Wausau. Before taking on this role, he was the co-sponsorship coordinator with ECDC, where he was responsible for facilitating creation and training of groups that sponsor new arrivals. Eric, it's good to see you again, and welcome to Route 51.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Eric Anderson is a retired Wausau physician. He and his wife, Margaret, have been involved in sponsor teams for several new arrivals to central Wisconsin working in that capacity for over a year, and has worn many different hats over that past year. In addition to helping coordinate some medical care, he's been a plumber, handyman, and shuttle driver. <laughs> you've, you've actually learned halal butchering of goats, sheep, and turkeys, and learned to drink a lot of tea as well. Dr. Anderson, thank you for being here. Thank you. You were both part of a panel in January for the Wisconsin Institute for Public Policy and Service that shared the experiences of the past year. I was lucky enough to be part of that. During that panel, we also heard from a certified health navigator, a new neighborhood resident from Burundi, and others. What do you think was the biggest kind of takeaway from that event, Eric?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, the thing that really I took away from it uh, was the need for us to keep uh, developing capacity uh, to help refugees and immigrants. Um, it was great hearing from everybody um, in terms of our experiences, um, but what really I took away was. We've really launched something, I think, fantastic for central Wisconsin in terms of um, getting more structured and getting more organized to help um, refugees. So that's the specific thing that was kind of the catalyst. Uh, but there's this much bigger and, and longer-term process going on of the need to help um, the immigrant communities that are have been a part of central Wisconsin for a long time. And um, they've been doing it. They've been plugging away. They've been working hard. And I think that this is this moment when we can start to really build on that and, and really bring together the, the resources needed to help and, and also make these people more visible. So. That was my big takeaway.
2: What about you, Dr. Anderson? Uh, Some of the same. I I was impressed by the the diversity of the peoples uh, arriving here from Afghanistan, uh, several African nations, as well as representatives who are talking to the Hispanic community and the Hmong community. And these are all people with incredible, unique stories uh, who want to be here, who want to make, make new relationships and develop their lives. And there's a ton of opportunities for us to connect with them.
0: Eric, tell us about the organization you work for. What's what's the ECDC mission, and and what's your role there?
1: Yeah, so um, the ECDC Multicultural Communities Center is our office, and we're in downtown Wausau. Um, and our mission is to help with refugee resettlement first. That's sort of our, our, our cornerstone. Um, and and we settle folks within a fifty mile radius. So we're we're basically trying to focus on families and individuals that we can settle in Wausau, in Stevens Point, and in Marshfield right now. We're hoping to build out to other communities as well in in the area. So refugee resettlement is kind of the first thing that we do, Uh, but really beyond that, uh, which there's a lot, (laughs) uh, we work on employment, uh, helping refugees to find employment. We make sure that we work with them to get um, all of our refugees uh, plugged into the necessary Immigrant legal support, you know, they're, they're going through the whole process of um, eventually moving towards a green card or getting a green card. Um, we've got a lot of work on folks uh, helping them get cash assistance if they need it, you know, housing. So we do everything, you know, from soup to nuts, I guess they say. But um, it is, it's, it's not just just resettlement. It's, it's going to be moving forward in the first couple of years of folks' um, lives here that we can we can help out in um, emergency cases as well. And that ranges from the Afghan community first, but through helping Ukrainians, um, through helping folks coming under other programs. And, and as Dr. Anderson mentioned, right now we've got a you know, fairly big um, group of folks coming in from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, so so we're, we're there to help. And um, we're hoping to build out more support um, that is, you know, for instance, we know there's a, a crying need for just immigration legal assistance. You know, there's that is just a big need in the area, and that's not just for refugees. That's for the other folks as well. So that's something we're working on. And one footnote I do want to put out there too is that I think that right now the perception in the community is that we're sort of like an outside group that that kind of came in. Um, So yeah, ECDC is the national, uh, but we're a local nonprofit now, and everybody in our office is got one person. We got a few people who grew up in Wasa. I'm, I'm from Point. Um, I've got a, We got a person from Marathon City, big old Marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we're locals. You know, and we're working to help bring refugees into the community. So that's that's what we're doing.
0: Thanks for, for pointing that out. Yeah. yeah, that it is very very much a local effort. Yeah. Dr. Anderson, how did you get involved in this? I mean, what drew you to to volunteer in this way, participate in this way?
2: You know, I think my perception, and as well as many people, when you watch the news and are just overwhelmed by things you see happening around the world and then feel helpless, that there's catastrophe everywhere. But yet here's an opportunity where there are people in our community who now need our help um, are coming from incredibly beautiful but disastrous places. And a lot of the initial sponsor groups were uh, started sort of faith-based uh, um, motivation. Church groups uh, decided to get involved, and the local development was spearheaded by a couple of local people. And Rebecca Voss from the Methodist Church started a nonprofit to help with that. And so that's how we got involved: is deciding we can do something. There's people here who need our help, and let's get involved. Okay.
0: Take me through the process a little bit, Eric. I, I mean, as a community engagement coordinator, you yeah. work closely with the co-sponsorship teams mm-hmm. and the other volunteers. What happens from start to finish? Uh, and I know that's a big question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I, we've been at it for a little over a year now, and uh, it's it's hard to find where start starts and finish finishes. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's kind of ongoing. Um, so, um, so I guess I put it in two parts, you know. Um, One part is that we are looking for volunteers um, always, kind of a a rolling thing, Um, and that's where like New Beginnings um, as a local organization um, is really important. We're, We're always looking for volunteers to help with things like Transportation. You know, we've we've got folks who are arriving now, um, and they've gotten their first job, and they are, you know, they're all they're all legal. They've all got their work permits, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's a challenge because a person who's just arrived, um, you know, is doesn't have a car, you know, and and so transportation's a thing. So we're looking for volunteers to help um, so we can plug in for that. We we look to New Beginnings quite a bit to help us with um, when folks arrive, helping set up the household. You know, we, we, we work to find an apartment, you know, find a, a house if we need to. But then you need furniture and, and all that. And so we have a donation site that New Beginnings runs and, and get all that together. So there's volunteers in, in one bucket that we need that are for, you know, here's a project, here's something we need right now. The other big one though is what we call co-sponsorship. And co-sponsorship is where, you know, we turn particularly to the faith communities and civic organizations last year. And this is a group, we organize a team, you know, of folks that are going to commit to walk alongside and, and be those first neighbors and welcoming group for a family uh, for nine months. So we we ask them to commit to nine months. We asked them to help raise the money so we can help, you know, kind of cover pay the bills. Um and we had a tremendous response from a lot of the faith communities in, in the Wausau area, but you know, great response in Stevens Point and Marshfield, too from faith communities um to to build out those first co-sponsorship teams. And we're in need of more co-sponsorship teams now because as you can imagine, when and, and I'm sure Dr. Anderson can speak to this mm-hmm. very personally, when the co-sponsorship team gets involved with a family. Um, you know, suddenly you're thinking about them 24 hours a day. You're thinking about what are their needs, how are things going in the house, how are the kids getting to school next week, what about the health appointments? You know, it's, it's all the family stuff that we grapple with. But now you're helping a refugee family sort of get that that launch, um, and then walk alongside of them as they try to become more self sufficient. You know, that first year in community, and that's a, that's a lot of work, and it, it can be a lot of a lot of work. And, and you know, we we worry about burnout. You know, for our our co sponsorship teams, but um, that kind of reward of being that close and connected to a new family is is the payoff.
0: Doctor Anderson, talk about that a little bit. What
1: it's like when you're,
2: I mean, you're suddenly responsible for this this family or you know these this group of people. And, and it certainly has been a blessing to be part of a group of local people who have committed to that yeah. as well. We met some great people and developed relationships with other Wausau residents who decided to jump in and get involved. And it, like Eric said, it's it's everything. It's Family appointments. It's how is uh, this kid incorporating um, nuts and bolts of, you know, moving from uh, a desert, a hot desert uh, in another part of the world to Wisconsin in January. And, you know, here's how you're supposed to shovel your sidewalk. Uh, Here's all kinds of things that we just do. That are very, very, very different to them. No, you should put socks on when you go outside <laughs> in your mm-hmm. shoes because it's cold. <laughs> uh, sure, so. yeah, it's something that seems so normal to us
0: is uh, very different.
2: And household things of, you know, operating logistic systems of their plumbing and electrical. And mm-hmm. um, Eric mentioned transportation and uh, all all those daily logistics things we've been involved in.
0: How many people have you worked with so far?
2: Well, the initial family that we were part of, the first family that arrived in Wassa the end of December last year, was a family of eight, uh, mom and dad and six kids. Uh, um, and then uh, been involved with several other families as they've arrived or individuals as they've arrived, uh, helping getting apartments set up, transportation. I've been a bike mechanic for lots of folks. <laughs> <Right>. and, <laughs> you know, That's their form of transportation when they get here is yeah. getting around Wasa on a bicycle. Um, so it's been a lot of... Uh, variety of stuff with those folks.
0: Eric, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, how you ask volunteers to help with, the, you know, gather the funding. Yeah. Uh, how are, how is this all funded? I mean, uh, is it a, yeah. a big pot of different things or?
1: <laughs> well, um, yeah, as a, as a nonprofit organization, we are, we're running off a lot of grants, you mm-hmm. know, so we, we work with uh, everything from grants that come uh, nationally from some large churches um, as well as grants that come from by way of some state organizations and some you know some federal, um, so we we live by grants and that's a lot of what we do. But the base funding for refugees um, that come under what's called reception and placement now that's a that comes through the U.S. State Department, and we receive a little bit of money per person, right? Um, and so when, for instance, say like when our first family arrived, and you have a family of eight. The State Department, through the, the whole vetting process that people go through and if they're coming for refugee resettlement, um, they receive a little over a thousand dollars per head you know per person. So you take that times eight, and that's a pot of money for a big family like that, mm-hmm. um, in order, and it's got to be used very strictly you know to, to pay rent, to pay utilities, pay food, you know, get clothing, and we have to document that that's what it is. Okay. And, it's, and it's one time, and, and that's what they get during reception and placement. So if you have a single person come, they arrive to us. And it's a little over $1,000 for that one person. And that's it. And yeah. that's it. You know, um, and so we, you know, one thing that our co-sponsorship teams have really helped us out with is that in the raising their money, you know, we we tell them, we're going to apply this money to your family, but we also need to reserve a bit because we're going to have individuals come and and help support them. So that's how we get started. Now, after a person, a uh, refugee, has been with us, you know, through that, that first 90 days, you know, for reception and placement... They are eligible for some refugee support services, you know, that um, can help. But, you know, we, we get them plugged in very quickly, though, into, um, you know, food share, for instance, to get them started. But they're all eager. I mean, the, the thing you're and I know, I know Dr. Anderson can speak to this, too, is, you know, they are so eager when they arrive saying, okay, how can I get a job? You know, how, get me plugged into work and get my kids in school. You know, and so they are eager people to get going, so that they aren't using you know, public assistance that long. Um, but but we're there to help make sure that the public assistance that is available to them mm-hmm. can get to them in that you know that first year.
0: You're listening to Route 51 with our guests, Dr. Eric Anderson and Eric Yonke. Ahead, we'll continue our discussion on lessons learned over the past year of Afghan resettlement and what communities can do to make the transition easier. We'll answer your questions, too, when you call us at 800-780-9742. You can also send an email to ideas at wpr.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Shereen Seward. Now we continue our reflection on a year of Afghan resettlement efforts with Dr. Eric Anderson and Eric Yonke. Your comments and questions are welcome, too. You can email us, ideas at wpr.org, or call 800-780-9742. I want to ask you both about some of the personal stories that you heard from the people that have come here. What were their lives like before and now? Dr. Anderson, let's start with you.
2: So the first family that came here came from a very different environment. They were small-town, rural, from the southern province in Afghanistan. I think they're related to everybody in their community. Both came from very large, extensive families. And then they come to a community where they know nobody. They're not related to anybody. It's a very different world. Um, So that's been a, a... challenge in resettlement is they're used to their life and social life revolves around huge extended families and communal life uh, day-to-day uh, revolves around that. They don't have that here, so it's um, getting established and building relationships uh, are um, important for them.
0: What, what did you hear about kind of the chaos that led up to <clears throat>
2: Yeah, that we heard a lot of interesting stories. on. We all saw it in the news, uh, on the news and the fall apart in Kabul. Uh, the, the particular family that came, they were there, and most of these folks that came initially had military connections with the U.S. military. They were partners with the Marines as interpreters, as fixers, as developers, and whatever role it was. Uh, this family, they told us their story. They were up in Kabul at the time with 100,000 people in a throng of people outside the airport trying to get noticed, and you can imagine how impossible that was. So they were there for 24 hours waiting, couldn't get noticed, uh, had to go back to where they were staying because they didn't have any more food or water. And they came back and made a big sign that said, we know Chesty Puller. Well, Chesty Puller happens to be the most decorated Marine in American history. He was a Korean uh, veteran, uh, and all the Marines knew of Chesty Puller. And they told Mati that if you ever need us, just tell somebody we know Chesty Puller. So they went back, made this big sign, and held it up and said, we know Chesty Puller. And the guys up at the gate of the airport, who probably were 18-year-old Marines, said, hey, what's going on back there? What's that Chesty Puller sign? Get that guy up here. That was their ticket in. Wow. Uh, incredible, iconic story of uh, that's how they got noticed. But we heard other tragic stories of families that yeah. got through the gates. And they got to the gate, and the, the Taliban said, okay, you can go. You have paper. You can go. Your son, he's 16. He's with us. He stays. Yeah. Uh, and people said, well, and they said, well, either way, he's with us. You can stay or go, but he's not going. Oh, so, what do you do? Yeah. Wow. Wow,
0: Eric. What are some of the things that you heard?
1: Yeah, I I think one thing I'd like to kind of underline that from the story Dr. Anderson's telling, and we we've heard this from almost every family is they have family back home. You know, they have family back wherever you know they they may have been, and um, so they arrive to us, and we know basically just the like the bio data. You know, I mean, we mm-hmm. have the basics. Here's how old these people are. How many people should be in the group? And they arrive, and um, almost immediately, you know, out of the airport, we're finding out, like, I've got a sister or brother, I've got son or daughter, um, my mom or dad, you know, are are, are back there, and they're waiting, and they want to join me. So that's part of what we've we've joined into here is is this kind of connectivity across the globe. And those stories are, um, they're, they're, they're the ones that that suddenly you, you feel your heart sink a bit, because you're, 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 you're realizing how much more um, we 're going to need to do you know to help help them with their family and their situation
2: yeah i 've met several single guys who are here working, whether it be from Afghanistan or yeah. African nations, and they 'll pull out their phone and show me pictures of their kids back home yeah. uh, they're they 're talking to their kids every day, but yet they 're here and they 're trying to figure out is there a way that they, their families can come here yeah
1: yeah so there 's a lot of that work going on behind the scenes, and we 're trying hard in our office to help that, you know. Mm-hmm. I got a young guy living next door to me. He's just the sweetest guy in the world, um, and he's about twenty-three. You know, when people meet him, they think he's like sixteen. You know, he's, he's from the DRC, you know, from Congo, and uh, he's his his mom and his five siblings are still in camp. You know, uh, back in um, in his case, it's it's Eastern Africa. There's a, there's a whole network of, of of camps and resettlement or settlement. You know, that they're coming from. And uh, we're trying to work on how to help get his his mom and his and his siblings here because he he took the lead, came over, and now he's trying to get started. He wants to be a truck driver. He wants to. He's trying to work on his English and get his CDL and, um, you know that kind of work is, is what we're engaged in. And 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 one thing we've seen from the families coming from uh, the various camps in Eastern Africa is. Um, They've all been in camp for, some of them, you know, 20 years. We're we're having families arrive where the kids have never lived outside of a refugee camp, you know. Um, And we even have a couple, like the young man lives by me. He's in his early 20s, early to mid-20s. And almost all of his life has been in the refugee resettlement camps. So we we get to learn about camp life, you know, when we talk to him.
0: How difficult has it been for refugees, especially those who spent – all that time in the camps to Mm -hmm. adapt to their new lives? Do they have a lot of anxiety about the future?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the short answer is yes. (laughs) Um, You can imagine that – and I, and I also want to help people understand that that some of these camps are, are very large. Some of them are 80,000 people, you know, some of them are, are a little smaller, you know, but um, their whole functioning massive kind of communities is what happens very quickly. You've got to figure out market. you got to figure out, like, how you're going to make money, how you're going to, you know, buy and exchange goods, how do you get a phone, you know, and they do it. They figure this out. So these people are incredibly resourceful, you know, and how and what they've come through, but It's also tenuous, you know, so so here we are trying to sit down with them and talk about, you know, like, okay, um, you're going to sign a lease for a year, you know, on Mm -hmm. an apartment and you're going to get a job and you're going to work this way. And I think we have to accept that there's going to be some struggle with trust, you know, like is this going to be here tomorrow, you know, sort of thing, Uh, because they've been coming through a situation where you do take things kind of day to day, you know, um, in order to to survive and to get by, you know. Um, So there's a. There's there's stress as you can imagine a lot of anxiety and we are you know we're engaging with the mental health professionals in the area too because you know it it's it's stress it's it's I think you do have you know PTSD that you're talking about in in reality with a number of the, the folks and um, how fe- how people are going to process what they've been through and it's jarring to be suddenly th- thrown into. You know, central mm-hmm. Wisconsin and, and, and trying to figure out, like, okay, how, what mm-hmm. am I doing and what do I need to do? Like, what, what's your priority list? Our priority list is very different than their priority list. So I can tell you that much as they're trying to figure that out. And just being able to communicate that is, is something that's part of it.
0: Dr. Anderson, talk a little bit about commu- uh, connecting refugees with healthcare. Mental health care has got to be especially challenging, but um, how, how does that work, and have you been able to, have they been able to get the services that they need?
2: For a large, most part, they have, and you know, we sort of, as part of the sponsorship teams, divided up what we thought their needs were going to be into broad categories, and my wife and I, being in medicine, said, okay, we'll help coordinate medical connections, and the Wausau Medical Community has been very welcoming. Uh, access, when people have needed things, um, have been very, very supportive. Uh, we have uh, one youngster who needed some specialized care and ultimately having surgery at Children's Hospital in Madison that they couldn't have gotten back in their home country. And so those resources have been very, very supportive. Eric was talking of mental health care. It's, it's difficult for everybody. I mean, we have that as a crisis across society, mm-hmm. access to mental health care. And you can imagine how stressful it is to have your life totally flipped over and disrupted and thrown into a new setting. And so... That's been challenging, just identifying that it's related to stress is, is the first step. Um, but we do have resources available that are getting people plugged in and um, community support groups. Um, so that's, that's an ongoing challenge with folks. But I, I would say overall, the medical community has been very welcoming mm. and supportive um, in helping people in whatever they needed. How about the business community and connecting with jobs? And, and they've been very anxious. You know, we have a lot of small manufacturing in Wassa and they all need workers. And we have people coming here who are anxious to work. Now, one of the challenges is, as Eric mentioned earlier, transportation. In Wassa we have a bus system, but yet it doesn't run out to where a lot of the manufacturing is on the west side of town. And even those in town sometimes that doesn 't fit their uh, shift schedule. We have one young man who 's working at Colby who goes to work at five in the morning well there 's no bus at five in the morning, so he rides his bike in the middle of winter um, so there are challenges with that, but the business community has been very supportive. We have uh, young people working in food service and healthcare, and manufacturing um, that they they 're anxious to work and they want to work
0: I want to ask you something uh, and uh, have the refugees that you've been working with all been able to gain their special immigrant visas, all of the paperwork? Is um, Is there any risk that they're not going to be successful in getting that status once they're
1: here? Well, when they arrive, okay, they're um – they're already under legal status. I mean, they're, they're already safe. And um, there's been, of course, a couple of, of categories that have been a little confusing for folks about that. So these, these are not um, – everybody who comes to us as a refugee has gone through a whole process where they've got legal documentation to be here. They have a visa status, you know, that, that allows them to be here. Now, in most of those cases, the structure of that is um, you're here under, um, you know, sort of what's, a, what's, a, what's considered like a priority one refugee or a special immigrant visa. You know, um, though, uh, those are good for like a year or two years. I mean, that, that's maximum. So, so sometime in that first year, they have to begin the process, therefore, to get um, what would be called, you know, what we call a green card in the United States. So um, there's a lot of anxiety that that they have um, in terms of okay, I've I've got this status that got me here legally in the United States, and, and there's kind of what you can call like a grace period, but how does this work? How do I get that that green card, you know, and have the um, resident, you know, non U.S. citizen status, you know, sort of sorted out. And that's where we're relying on folks in the Twin Cities and folks in Milwaukee and other places where there is more immigration law specialization to help us get that paperwork process. And people in our office are, are kind of learning and, and getting certified. Um, so it, 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 there's a distinction that we want the sort of, sort of the, the listeners to understand that these folks do come in under a completely legal status and they've been very carefully vetted. Mm-hmm. Um, but then begins a process of how do you get towards that green card.
0: What happens if they don't get it? Can they be can they be sent back?
1: So um, the the only thing that really blocks them from being from getting a green card, states, is if they actually broke the laws in the United States. So okay. they're actually they're okay, but uh-huh. <laughs> you know it is it is harrowing to have to wait you know through that process. And you know so there isn't a, a refugee can't be sent back. Let's put it that way. That's that's what kind of a simple answer: is that there there isn't um, uh, unless of course there was violation of US law. Okay. You know, um, in which case they'd actually just go into our criminal system. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's what would happen. Um but the um as you, as you know if you've if you've gotten to know internationals, folks who live in the United States, the, the process of, of getting your green card and, and maintaining your status involves, you know, showing up for, you know, um, appointments, you know, in Milwaukee or in Chicago um, you know, you're living in Wausau, you know, there, there's, there are a lot of hoops people have to jump through and we try to help them sort that out. But yeah, we, we don't have us. We had people who were really worried, you know, like they came over under humanitarian parolee, which is like the, the most, you know, um, tenuous, you might say category. Um, they do have to get, we have to get them onto more of a regular, um, asylum seeker kind of status in the United States um you know what happens you know do we get sent back it's like well um the us government's made it clear for the afghans we're not sending you back <laughs> you know <laughs> okay. so as an example uh-huh sure yeah.
0: i'm wondering how the kids are doing how the how the kids are adapting in in schools are are they picking up english are they are they fitting into the the, the schools that they're going to
2: that's been a really exciting and fun part to watch uh, in some of these families of the adaptations that the kids have made. Uh, the first family in particular, a range of kids from 3 to 16, mm-hmm. and they're all incorporating very well, from participating in school sports. And you know, they came here, and one of them spoke English. The rest didn't speak any English. Uh, we got kids in four different schools, I think, now in, in this one family, um, and the five younger ones didn't speak any English when they got here. Now they're all chatting away and learning mm-hmm. all the things that uh, are part of being a kid in America and, you know, excited and proud to show us their Citizenship of the Month award that they got from the middle school. And um, we just this last weekend had them out sledding, which was a new experience uh, for them. So uh, all kinds of things that they're doing now to, that kids here do, that they're, they're doing well. And it's, it's, that's been rewarding and fun to see.
0: How is English being taught?
1: yeah no it's, i'm glad you asked <laughs> because i uh, really also kind of want to give a shout out to the school districts um they've all really stepped up and 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 this is st- stressful for the school districts you know it's not like they're overfunded um mm-hmm. and so the the way it's it's working is that you know they do have um english language you know courses english language instructors you know that are working with the the children um you know in classroom settings you know you know the but they don't have a lot, right? There's a, there's a lot that, that's going on. So we're so impressed with how hard the teachers, you know, have been working to to help the, the kids to succeed, knowing in some respects this was just kind of thrown on top of what their work already was, you know? So So this is something that we're, we really want the public to be aware of, you know? And, and in Marshfield I am I'm, I'm so kind of amazed and impressed with the uh the teams working with the families there because we have a bunch of retired teachers and and they basically were able to work with their you know their their former colleagues you know in in the classrooms at Marshfield and say hey can we come in and basically kind of be in class tutors you know and that's what they've been doing in Marshfield and that's been a tremendous help and so you know we you know the, the kids are so resilient you know the, the the kids are are just so fun you know to watch them and how they're flourishing uh, but we know these these teachers are working overtime and and really helping so they're it's 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 been really gratifying
2: but the adults are also participating in language yes. learning classes through the uh, new beginnings refugee program uh, we have the ELL classes in Wassa that's an ongoing thing the intent was to get them up to a certain level, and then from there they could take it to NTC and continue mm-hmm. language classes. I think a lot of them are finding they like the setting of the ELL classes, uh, and some of the stay-at-home moms are still going weekly to classes and gatherings, um, and um, so they they have help with that uh, as well.
0: and are those also giving them maybe some social opportunities to connect? Yeah. They
2: have women's tea <laughs> gathering, and uh, there's they some child care participation for the those that need that as part of the ELL classes. So that's a social support as well as just nuts and bolts language learning. And part of it is the n- integration of life in town, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, the really great point Dr. Anderson brings up is the New Beginnings has done this great job of stepping in and helping us because... Um, pre-illiteracy you know we, we have folks some folks who are coming to us um, were, we're actually never actually um, educated say within the within language group and, and the uh, language of their home country so there's a whole need there that is very hard to plug in so like the technical colleges Midstate Technical, North Central Technical are doing a great job uh, providing um, English language courses for folks who can get into a classroom setting you know and, and work on it But there's a need beyond that for English practice, and again, that's where, um, you know, the Portage County Literacy Council, Marathon County Literacy Council are helping us in Marshfield, and they're helping us in Stevens Point um, add on those courses. So for anybody to really learn the language and to keep learning, you know, um, it can't just be, you know, the the classroom. It's got to be these other opportunities. And so, you know, we do look for volunteers also to plug in, like at New Beginnings and and elsewhere um, at the Lit Councils, to. Also be, like, just language partners, you know, so they can keep working on their language skills. Because the other complicating factor, of course, is when they get a job, you know. And so when we get, get folks in jobs, then suddenly it's like, okay, how can I fit in some language learning, you know, yeah, around my shifts? Sure. You know, and that, that's where we're looking for people who can have a little flexibility and be available other hours. And that's where the volunteers, again, plug in in a big way.
0: Eric Yonke and Dr. Eric Anderson are our guests today on Route 51 as we continue our reflection on a year of Afghan resettlement programs in central Wisconsin communities. Ahead, we'll talk about the biggest challenges our new neighbors have encountered and what can be done to help them. We'd like to hear from you too. You can join us at 800-780-9742. You can also send an email to ideas at wpr.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward with our guests, Dr. Eric Anderson and Eric Yonke, continuing our discussion on the past year of Afghan resettlement programs. What would you like to know? You can email us at ideas at wpr.org or join us by phone at 800-780-9742. I have to say there was a lot of fear when this whole thing first happened. When refugees were first at Fort McCoy, when they first arrived in Wisconsin, some people were very worried. We talked about the vetting process earlier this hour. Have those attitudes changed?
1: <laughs> wow, that's a hard one to answer mm-hmm. um, um I, okay, I guess what I'd say and and this has been sort of our experience in in the office is um you know there have been a few people who've been kind of vocally i' i call vocally you know um stressed and fearful uh, but um, I think Mayor Rosenberg, I think the, the, the leadership and the community, um, you know, we're talking about the police department, the schools or, you know, local government, they really made it clear up front that, that we're, gonna, we're here to help, you know, and, and put a real positive sort of, um, you know, sort of frame on this. Um, and so, you know, while we have had some folks who have not responded, kind of responded out of fear, we've also had a lot of people respond out of how can we help. You know, what, what can we do and, and are actually excited about having a more diverse city and a more uh, diverse region, you know. So, so I feel like, you know, they're, they're, I think there's this quiet group out there, and I hope they're doing okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I worry about them. Um, but uh, that's why I think if you, if you are sort of supportive of diversity and inclusion, you need to speak up. You know, and that helps us set the tone um, for how this this goes. But you know, yeah, there was there was definitely fear, and there's and I'm sure the fear is still out there. You know, um, mm-hmm. but uh, we're very appreciative of the folks who've been positive.
2: But we've seen some of that melt away even at the very local neighborhood level. You know, people wondering, oh, there's this new family coming in. What is it going to be like? Uh, and that's kind of melted away at the at the truly neighbor level. Uh, as they reach out to be neighborly and share tea and food and do what neighbors do, um, the response has been overwhelming uh, that people are like, oh, these are great people. Now they live in our neighborhood, and let's uh, help them out in the way neighbors would. That's been positive. And Eric yeah. talked about... Diversity in the community—an exciting thing happening potentially down the road. We've had a lot of conversations with um, Missoula, Montana, who has done had a similar population of refugees, and they've developed a project of sharing food with the community. Uh, And each week they have a guest chef uh, and have uh, a food sale. And there's keep your ears, eyes open, and ears open because that's going to be happening uh, here—a pilot program of uh, food sharing, um, and a food market, uh, with kind of guest chefs, uh, of various ethnic backgrounds. Yeah.
0: And there's some mm-hmm. different, I mean, there's some differences in the way foods are prepared, oh. cultural differences that uh, you're very familiar with. That <laughs> well.
2: You know, absolutely. And that's been, I mean, I'm a big fan of that. It's been great. Uh, I guess if you, if you really don't want to adventure food, well, that's probably not good for you, but if you like that, um, these folks, that's part of their culture is sharing food uh, and, um, they want to do that. Uh, and yeah, we've learned to love it and you learned how to butcher animals in a in, in in the tradition so with the with the afghan population here coming from a muslim background they have specific laws in the quran about handling of meats uh, under the category of halal and that's not necessarily in, immediately available in the markets here So their access to meat when they first got here was fairly limited and had to be resourceful and do it on their own. And so we've helped facilitate that, and several local farmers have been open to that possibility. Um, So they've done some of their own butchering and procurement to follow halal guidelines. Now it's starting to be a little more available in the grocery stores. Neighbors Place now carries halal meats that they have access to. Um, but it's it's been an educational process for us.
0: Mm-hmm. You talked a, a lot about uh, how the, the the schools have done such a good job with the, the English programs. Mm-hmm. Have they? Do you, do you have a sense of how they have worked to ensure that students understood the cultural differences and and kind of gained that acceptance? Are they doing a good job of that?
1: Oh, I yeah, I, I give all the credit to the teachers and how they're they're navigating that. Um, it is I, I think for the kids you know there there's a lot of just you know I guess you can call it like assimilation almost you know what I mean in terms of their they're they're trying to figure out like what are their classmates doing, how do I fit in you know that sort of thing and 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 they they adapt you know well, and I think the teachers have been great facilitators at that. I do worry about um and then the parents worry a lot about the loss of their culture, you know and they they look to their children and they go, are they going to lose their cultural identity? And, um, you know, how how to do that is like a larger community project. I think the teachers are totally game to learn more, uh, you know, about the other cultures that are coming and, and to, to know the folks and, and the, the kids and where they're coming from. But it's a bigger project that we, you know, we want to keep working on. And, and I'm really happy to see the schools and what they're trying to do. Uh, but also we get got some local organizations that are doing some great work on this. I, I, I do want to mention Mosaic. Mosaic has really stepped up, and they're having a, a conference, their kind of community conference on February 24th here at, you know, on this campus, um, where, you know, we're going to have a chance to talk um, with employers, but we're also going to have a chance just to talk and have some of the refugees talk about their cultures and their experience of living in, in central Wisconsin. Um, there's cultural affairs coming up, that kind of thing, and so there's opportunities the point of them, ultimately, is is to help us as folks who've lived in central Wisconsin for a very long time to learn more about what is halal meat, you know, uh, to, to actually enjoy, you know, this, this other, the other folks who are bringing these other really great world experiences and, and cultures to to our community.
2: But when you talk about education, it brings up a point of such a glaring contrast of opportunity. When you see on the news that after the uh, exodus, the Taliban shut down schools for girls— mm-hmm. And and now we have girls here who are going to co-ed, phi-ed classes uh, or working in the community. And at home, they'd be shut down, locked in the back room, basically. They can't go out without escort of the man of the house. Uh, Otherwise, they can be detained or beaten or whatever. And it's just such an incredible contrast of opportunity. Um, And it's exciting to see those opportunities develop.
0: How are they finding places to worship? Have there been opportunities for that as well? There
2: is a mosque in Wausau, uh, and uh, they've—it's par- a um, multinational facility, uh, and they've uh, made connections there. Yeah, so- it's,
1: it's a—you uh, know a, a prayer house. You know, uh, Muslims from uh, various Muslims who've lived in the community for a while, and there's the Islamic um, Society of Central Wisconsin, which is based in Marshfield. So we have seen, you know, um, uh, other members of the the Islamic faith come forward and say, hey, if they're Muslims and they need a place to pray, here's here's what we're doing. And so um, it's still a challenge, you know, but it's it's. It's, going, it's, it's often running, so it's, in, it's really support of, of local families that um, are, are also practicing Muslims.
2: And we've heard, even heard stories of local uh, employers who have made accommodations for yep. their prayer time. Okay, on your break, you're allowed to go to a quiet place and separate yourself for five minutes, and um, they respect that. Interesting. It's getting better.
0: <laughs> when do you think local communities have benefited from these programs in in I mean you talked about how diversity really helps uh make a community more whole. Um have we gained critical insights in the last
1: year? Um boy, that's a good question. Um I don't know how much we've gained critical insights, but we're, we're working. I think we're getting there. You know, I, think, I think we're right now going to that stage of uh, – initial stage of just trying to understand what the questions are, you know, quite honestly. Um, you know, our goal is going to be t- to help resettle 150 to 175 refugees um, in central Wisconsin each year. So we're now into a second year, and we'll have more refugees coming. And so I feel like we're still in this this building process where we're still learning the questions. Um, and I was just struck the other day thinking, you know, the people of good, you know, really of goodwill who have stepped forward are so eager and so interested in learning more, you know, from our new neighbors. Um, and uh, now we got to keep working on that. Like what? Where now? Can are there ways that we can be more? Um, uh, empowering for the refugees as they build lives here to have um, a, a voice, you know, and have voices, I should say, that can really help educate us. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we're, we're, we're it's a great start, you know, and I think we just got, we're just gonna keep working on it.
0: And the volunteers, like, you know, the, the volunteers who are involved in the process how they've been successful in kind of promoting the interaction between refugees and the local community is that a crucial aspect of it? I mean introducing them to your friends and including them in your backyard barbecues and those kinds of things
2: <laughs> and then that 's really what it 's been about is building relationships as neighbors. Uh, you yeah. know We live in a very different place than they did, and so we 've been showing them what life here is like, taking mm-hmm. the kids out sledding and you know, talking about American football versus what they call football. And (laughs) lots of things they're learning about life here. And the volunteers have all had the similar experiences of sharing what our lives are like because they're very eager to learn about it, to be able to incorporate, and they want to share their own. So it it comes down to building relationships uh, that grow with time.
0: Is it harder? uh, Is the resettlement process harder in small communities?
1: (laughs) Well, there are challenges, right? I mean, and and we're like one of only a couple of resettlement agencies that have been opened in smaller city venues. Most of them are in big cities, and and that makes sense uh, because typically the larger cities, not only can you look at infrastructure like transportation, but um, having enclaves of of ethnic groups so that they can find grocery stores and and prayer houses and things um, much more easily. So we're we 're kind of an experiment, you know in some respects, but um so some of those things are really challenging and and one of our biggest fears and things that we really work on is we don 't want our our new neighbors to feel isolated you know so we're so we 're really asking the community to to reach out and help us with that, recognizing though that that we as, as, as one of the reasons it 's good to be settling folks every year is to make sure we can build up enough communities so that that folks don't get isolated. You mm-hmm. know what I mean. So that that's that's a big that's a big concern we have. But uh, boy, I tell you, if you remember from the panel. You know, you just, just listening to Emmanuel talk for a little bit, you, you just feel like this guy's energy is so good. He's going to help build community, you mm-hmm. know, with us. And, 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 yeah, and
0: Emmanuel yeah. was a, a refugee who spoke at the panel and, and shared his story, and, yeah. and that, was, that was great to hear mm-hmm. as well.
2: And the benefit of being a smaller community is we're a safe community. I mean, yeah. these folks, they had a lot of questions about, well, can I let my kids go outside? Can they go to the park? Yes. Will they get kidnapped? No, they're not going to get kidnapped here. Yeah. Yes, take them to the park. It's safe to be out in the community. I mean, there's certain... You know sure. parameters we put around that, but that's the blessing of being in a small community yeah. is we have a wonderful safe community and instilling that in them has taken a while.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point because they, yeah, they do come from situations that are so tenuous, you know, that um we'll have questions like you know, is it okay? Adult male asks me, is it okay for me to walk after dark? You know, and it's like yeah yeah I mean yeah um so so and and I had considered this is what I'll put out there because I'm a dog owner um is that I've had a couple of really intense conversations with a couple of men who said you know I'm really worried about walking at night because if I encounter a dog you know because in a lot of places the dogs that are stray out in the streets are very dangerous okay and so I'm trying to say to you know you're probably not gonna encounter a dog and if you do it's probably somebody letting their dog out in the yard you know they're, they're all pets you know um so there are a lot of things that we're we don't think about but they, they, they do worry about. But this is, again, one of the beauties, like Dr. Anderson said, of being in a small community. We've got so many friendly people, and, and it's safe.
0: Is there anything that you think could be done better, so, something that could be changed about the process that
2: would make it easier
0: for you as a volunteer?
2: Well, it's been a learning experience as we watch ECDC get more efficient at accessing resources and what they're, um, what they're entitled to and what other resources are available to them. So I don't know that I, I think what would be done differently is we'll just draw on the experience that we've had. You know, we've learned a lot uh, in parallel with the official organizations in how to help people uh, access resources, and that will be helpful moving forward.
0: What about you? I mean, what, what do you think could be done differently, or are there things that you need that you wish that you had, tools that you wish you had in your toolbox?
1: yeah i mean the the first year uh, it really was one of the situations where we felt like we were flying the plane you know building it while we're flying it you know that kind of sure. situation still feel that way a bit um but yeah, I think that we're we're really working to become better at at how do we access and, and organize resources how do we how do we better just appreciate our volunteers i mean, I felt like we had a lot of people kind of come out, you know, and we threw them at, you know, mm-hmm. the situation. And then it's like, oh, how do we help them to feel appreciated? So there's, that's sort of work to be done. I think in terms of our needs, um, our, our needs are now, I think, to continue building up more co-sponsorship teams so that as the families come, we're, we're better structured and we are better structured to, to help take care of them as well. So I think getting more co-sponsors is a biggie. Um, and, I think we need to keep working away on you know, what we're going to be doing for housing options and transportation. Those are going to be our biggies. And I could
2: put a shout out to people that want to get involved. Get involved. It's worth it. It's been a blessing to us. It's been a great experience. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of room for people to get involved in big ways, little ways, however they feel comfortable doing.
0: How do you suggest people get involved? Who should they reach out to?
2: They can contact yeah. Eric's office, uh, okay. and that would be the place to start.
1: Okay. Do
0: you yeah. need donations of things, too? You talked about furniture and you know, bikes. I mean, are you still mm-hmm. collecting those kinds of things, or are you pretty well set?
1: Yeah, no. So so New Beginnings um, um, operates uh, where we have furniture uh, at, at the old JCPenney's, um, and so the first Saturday of, of the month, Ten to twelve in the morning, they're okay. open for people that to bring in, um, you know, uh, donations that way. Um, and Dr. Anderson, in terms of the um, the pantry, is, the, it, is we now the have same... the house. The household yeah.
2: pantry has moved yeah. into the basement of First Presbyterian Church downtown, and that is stocked with household goods, uh, toiletry items, uh, setting up the kitchen, setting up bathrooms, um, household needs, and that's all organized out of there. And they need donations as well, and people are coming there to access uh, and get that stuff. So that would be. Yeah. Uh, either through contact ECDC office or call New Beginnings, uh, and they're more than open to taking uh, donations.
1: Yeah, and if people contact me, they can check out our, our basic information all at, you know, it's org. Mm-hmm. That's our webpage. Um, but, you know, we've got um, a nice pantry down at St. Paul's UMC in, um, in Point as well. So, yeah.
0: Sounds great. We'll put some of those resources on our webpage Perfect. as well. You're listening to Route 51. Shereen Seward here. Extending a huge thanks to our guests, Dr. Eric Anderson and Eric Yankee. It's been a pleasure. Our producers are Joy Ratch Kramer and Kate Springer. Our executive producer is Rick Ryer. Rick uh, is our executive producer, but Joy is our on-air producer today. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program as well as our previous programs at wpr.org/route51. Next week, we'll be back with another fascinating discussion, and we hope you'll join in. Until then, we're heading out of town.